If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI thought leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by Gigaholm and I'm Byron Reese. Today, I'm excited our guest is Naveen Rao. He is the Corporate VP and General Manager of Artificial Intelligence Product Group at Intel. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineer from Duke and a PhD in Neuroscience from Brown University. Welcome to the show, Naveen. Thank you. Glad to be here. You're going to give me a great answer to my standard opening question, which is what is intelligence? Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. It uh, really doesn't have a agreed upon answer. Um, my, my version of this is really about potential and capability. Um, I think uh, what I see as an intelligence system is a system that is capable of, of decomposing structure within data. Uh, so by my definition, I would call a newborn human baby uh, intelligent because the potential is there, but the, the system is not yet trained with, with real experience. So I think that's, that's different than sort of uh, other definitions where we talk about the phenomenology of intelligence, where you, know, you can categorize things and all of this. I, I think that's where the outcropping of having, having actually learned the inherent structure uh, of the world. And so in what sense, by that definition, is artificial intelligence actually artificial? Is it artificial because we built it or is it artificial because it's not real intelligence? It's like artificial turf. It just looks like intelligence. Oh, no, no. I think it's, it's artificial because we built it. That's all. There's nothing artificial about it. The, the term intelligence doesn't have to be on biological mush. It can be implemented on any, any kind of substrate. In fact, there's even research on uh, uh, how slime mold, yes, you heard oh, that, slime right. mold actually solves computational problems. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, how does it do that, by the way? That's a, that's a really, you know, a, a pretty staggering thing. Yeah, you know, um, there's a concept of what we call gradients. So gradients are just, you know, how information gets more uh, crystallized, you can think of, right? So if, if I feel like I'm going to learn something by going one direction, I can call that, that direction is the gradient. It's sort of the pointer in the way I should go. And uh, that can exist in, in the chemical world as well. And things like slime mold actually use chemical gradients that translate into information processing to actually learn uh, dynamics of a system. So uh, our neurons do that. Uh, neur deep neural networks do that in a computer system. They're, they're all based on something sort of similar at one level. So let's talk about the nematode worm for a minute. Okay. You've got this worm... The fellow's you know, most successful creature on the planet, 70% of all animals are nematode worms, and he's got 302 neurons. Yeah. And he exhibits certain kinds of complex behavior. And there have been a bunch of people in the Open Worm Project who've spent 20 years trying to model those 302 neurons in a computer yep. just to get it to duplicate what the nematode does. And even among them, they're like, we're not even sure this is possible. So why are we having such a hard time with such a simple thing as a nematode worm? Well, I think this is, there's a bit of a fallacy of, of reductive thinking here that, you know, hey, if I can understand the 302 neurons, then I can understand the 80, 86 billion neurons in, in the uh, human brain. Um, I think that fallacy falls apart because, you know, there are different emergent properties that happen when we go from... Uh, one size system to another, right? It's like running a company of 50 people is not the same as running a company of 50,000. Right? Very different. So that's but, one to, but, to, but to jump in there, my question wasn't, why doesn't the nematode worm tell us something about human intelligence? Yeah. My question was simply, why don't we understand how a nematode worm works? Right. So I was, I was going to get to that. So I think uh, there's a few reasons for that. One is interaction of any complex system, hundreds of elements, is actually extremely complicated, right? There's a, there's a concept in physics called the three-body problem, where, uh, you know, if I have two, two pool balls on a, on a pool table, I can actually 100% predict where uh, 
the balls will end up if I know the you know initial state and I know how much energy I'm in, injecting. If I hit one of the balls in one of the directions with a certain force, if you make that three, I cannot do that in a closed form system. I have to actually simulate uh, you know sort of steps along the way. Uh, so that's that's called a three body problem, and it, it's actually a computationally intractable to compute that. So you can imagine when it gets to three hundred and two, it gets even more difficult. And what we see in big systems like in mammalian brains where we have billions of neurons and 300 neurons is that you actually have pockets of uh, you know, closely interacting pieces in the big brain that interact at a, at a higher level. That's what I was getting at when I talked about these emergent properties. So you still have that 302 body problem, if you will, uh, in a big brain as you do in a small brain. So th that complexity hasn't gone away, gone away, even though it seemingly is a much simpler system. So the interaction between 302 different things, even when you know precisely how each one of them is connected, is just a very complex matter. And, and if you try to um, uh, model all the interactions and you're off by just a little bit on any one of those things, the entire system may not work. And that's why we don't understand it because you can't characterize every piece of the system, right? Like every synapse, you can't really mathematically characterize. And so you have to, if you, if you don't get it perfect, you, you won't get a system that functions properly. So does that, do you, do you say that suggesting by extension that the human brain project in Europe, which no. really is, uh, you're laughing and nodding. What's your take on that? Uh, I, I am not a fan of the human brain project um, for this exact reason. The complexity of the system is just, incredibly high and if you're if you're off by one tiny parameter by a tiny little a bit a little amount it's sort of like the butterfly effect right it can just have huge consequences on the operation of the system and you really haven't learned anything all you've learned how to do is kind of model some you know uh, micro dynamics of the system and you haven't really gotten any true understanding of how the system really works you know i had a guest on the show nova spivak who said that a single neuron may turn out to be as complicated as a supercomputer and it may even operate down at the plank level. Um, like it's this incredibly complex thing. Yeah. Is, is that possible? Well, okay. So it, it is a physical system. It's a physical device. So one could argue the same thing about a single transistor as well. Right. Uh, we engineer these things to act within certain bounds. And I believe the brain actually takes advantage of that as well. All right. So I think a neuron, while it, to, to completely accurately describe everything a neuron is doing, you're absolutely right. It could take a supercomputer to do so, but we don't necessarily need to abstract a supercomputer's worth of value from each neuron. I think that's a fallacy. Um, there are lots of nonlinear effects and all this kind of crazy stuff that are happening that really aren't useful to the overall function of the brain. Right? Just like an individual neuron can do very complicated things, but when we put a whole bunch of them together to build a processor, we're exploiting one piece of the way that neuron, or sorry, the way that transistor behaves uh, uh, to make that processor work. We're not exploiting everything that that in the possibility in the realm of possibility what that uh, transistor can do. Okay, we're going to get to artificial intelligence in a minute. I'm just always great to have a neuroscientist um, on the show. So, um, mm -hmm. so we have we have these brains, and you said they exhibit emergent properties. Emergence is, of course, uh, the phenomenon where the whole of something takes on characteristics that none of the components have. Right. And it's often thought of in two variants. One is uh, weak emergence, where once you see the emergent behavior with enough study, you can kind of reverse engineer, oh, I see why that happened. And one is a much more controversial idea of strong emergence that it may not be discernible. The emergent property may not be derivable from the component. So do you think human intelligence is a weak emergent property? Or do you believe uh, in strong emergence? I, I do in some ways believe in strong emergence. Let me, let me give you the subtlety of that. Um, I, I don't necessarily think it can be analytically solved um, because the system is so complex. Uh, what I do believe is that you can characterize the system within certain bounds. Um, it's much like how we how uh, a, a human may actually solve a problem like playing chess, right? We can't we don't actually pre-compute every possibility. We don't do that sort of a brute force kind of a thing. But we do come up with um, heuristics that are accurate most of the time. And I think the same thing is true with the bounds of a very complex system like the brain is that we can come up with um, bounds of this emergent property of these emergent properties within you know 95 percent 
um, that, that are accurate 95% of the time, but we won't be accurate 100% of the time. It's not going to be as, as beautiful as some of the, the, the physics we have that can describe the world. In fact, even physics might, be, might fall into this category as well. So I guess the short answer to your question is I, I do believe in the, in the strong emergence that will never actually 100% describe. Uh, but do you think fundamentally intelligence could, given you know, an infinitely large computer, be understood in a reductionist format or or is there some break and cause and effect along the way where you actually can't where you actually it would be literally impossible are you saying it's practically impossible or literally impossible to understand the whole system top to bottom kind of from the emergence well, to be able to start with this is a neuron yeah and it does this and put a 86 billion together and voila you have naveen rao I think it's literally impossible. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, go with that. That's a that's an interesting thing. So, it's why is it literally impossible? Because the complexity is is just too high, and the amount of energy and effort required to actually get to that level of understanding is is fair enough. Many orders of magnitude more complicated than what you're trying to trying to understand. So now let's let's talk about the mind for a minute. We talk about the brain, which is physics. So the mind and and to use kind of a definition that most people, I think, wouldn't have trouble with, uh, I'm going to call the mind all of the capabilities of the brain that seem a little seem a little beyond what a three pounds of goo should be able to do, like creativity and a sense of humor. Like your liver presumably doesn't have a sense of humor, but your brain does. So where do you think the mind comes from? Or are you going to just say it's an emergent property? <laughs> I, I do kind of say it's an emergent property, but it's not just an emergent property. It's an emergent property that's actually the coordination of the physics of our brain, right? The, the way the brain itself works and the environment. Um, I, I don't believe that a mind exists without, without the world. Uh, you know, a, a newborn baby I called intelligent because it has the potential to actually decompose the world and actually find, you know, meaningful structure within it in which it can act. But if it doesn't actually do that, it doesn't have a mind. Uh, and you know, you, you can see that with if if you had kids yourself. Like as a neuroscientist, I, I was I actually had a, a new newborn while I was studying neuroscience, and uh, it's actually quite interesting to see. I, I don't think a newborn baby is really quite sentient yet. That sort of emerges over time as as the system actually interacts with the real world. So I think it's a, I think the mind is actually an emergent property of brain plus environment interacting. And so, in that view of the world, a computer could have a mind or not? Absolutely, yes. Now, let's, interestingly, just to put a pin on what you just said, you said the baby wasn't sentient. Yeah. That, that technically means able to sense or able to feel pain, which people actually used to think, by the way, up until the 90s, we did open heart surgery on babies without mm -hmm. anesthesia yeah. for that very reason. Uh, but I am assuming you, you, well, anyway, um, uh, I, what I mean by sentient is not necessarily the, the, the sense uh, the, the, the signals of nociception go to the brain and actually drive what we call pattern behavior. That is absolutely true in a baby. Uh, what I don't believe is necessarily true is that there is a, um, uh, a self-awareness. There's not a mind that's formed yet that actually perceives this, uh, you know, in the same way that an adult does. Okay, then yeah. let's talk about consciousness, yeah. uh, and then we're going to get to so consciousness. Uh, just to so I, I like the definition. So I'm going to call consciousness uh, the experience of being you. It's the difference between a computer's ability to measure temperature and your ability to feel warmth. Right. What does that come from the mind or the brain or the mind? We won't worry about that. That is a, a mechanistic. Do you believe that's a mechanistic property? It, well, it's a function of the mind, not just the brain, right? So the brain is part of the mind, as I said. Um, uh, the coordination between how the mind, how the brain itself is physically modified with the real world, is the brain is the mind, in, in, in my my verbiage. So the brain is part of it. The nociceptive signals arrive at the brain, or the temperature signals arrive at the brain, go through some sort of a processing hierarchy, which is interpreted relative to the experience of that that system, that brain, um, 
throughout its life, right? So that actually made it um, uh, have a mind. So I, I think all of these things actually are, are um, they hang together uh, in, in a framework, right? It's not that one, one thing negates the existence of the other. It's that you need necessary ingredients to get to a mind and a mind is what actually feels uh, uh, these sensations. So in neuroscience, we actually discriminate between what we call uh, the signal or the percept. And so I think that's kind of what you're getting at. The percept is, is a function of the mind, and we don't really talk about that in neuroscience because it's not really testable uh, or easily testable. And uh, the sensation or the signal uh, is what we, we call a physical uh, thing that can be tested. So you're saying consciousness is the percept. Correct, yeah. And so just that idea, though, that matter can have a first-person experience of something. The matter can experience the world. It's a hard, it's because I don't think my iPhone perceives the world. I don't think it perceives, oh. it experiences the world one one millionth of the way I do. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't even begin to register. Right. So what, what's, what do you think is going on in us that is different well, than I, the iPhone? I, I will answer that, uh, but I'm going to walk you through some uh, kind of a thought experiment first. So, okay, you said your iPhone doesn't experience the world. I probably agree with that. Um, does a bee experience the world? I don't know. Maybe a little bit. Does a, uh, does a lizard experience the world? I don't know. Maybe a little bit more. Does an alligator? Does you know? So I can walk up the hierarchy of animals, and I can actually say you know, uh, do you actually believe that this animal experiences the world and this one doesn't? If I said dog, you'd probably say yes. If I said chimpanzee, you would say definitely. So there, there's definitely a gradient here. I, I don't Okay, think but, but to pause there, I'll grant that. I'll say all life has some degree of experiencing the world. So why isn't my iPhone alive? Well, so that's what I was going to get to, is that each one of those systems that I described, all the way from the bee, all the way to the chimpanzee, uh, they adapt to the world uh, in a in a in a different to a different degree. Your iPhone doesn't really adapt to the world in, with any kind of a, a quick loop. But my so, Nest thermometer does. Sorry. My Nest thermometer does. Yeah, to a certain degree, it does. On on a few parameters, it does. So maybe you could argue that it does have some sort of experience of the world. But, it's but you actually, chuckle when you say that because it's preposterous to think, isn't it? Uh, is it preposterous? You didn't chuckle when you said the bee. You were like, huh, maybe. But hey, huh, maybe the nest, sure. Because I think intuitively we feel like, no, of course not. It's a bunch of screws and whatever. That's right. But I think uh, that's that's what, that's the piece that we have to start thinking differently about is that machines can start adapting to the world um, and actually start developing this kind of mind, if you will, where you have the hardware and then you have the experience that modify the physical hardware in some way, uh, or it could be software, which is still a modification of physical hardware. Um, and that actually leads to a mind that experiences maybe a very, um, uh, you know, it's not gonna be the same degree of experience that a human being has because our mind, our brain is actually very, very adaptive, uh, but it does have some kind of uh, experiential view of the world. What about what about systems like an ant colony or a beehive, where the system itself, as a whole, behaves, um, where the system as a whole adapts, right, and it responds. So, would you? I, I grew up as a beekeeper. I raised bees. Okay. And I, so I used to be really interested in bee lore. And there's an old belief, you know, kind of nod, nod, wink, wink, that if a beekeeper ever dies, you have to go tell the, the beehive. Because you have to go out there and say, you know, your, your keeper's dead. I'm the new keeper. Because the, the bees, no bee understands that. But somehow collectively, the swarm does. Mm -hmm. Is that possible? Not specifically the B one, but that these these sorts of disconnected living systems could have their own form of consciousness in the way you see the world. I don't think it's not. It's not only possible; it, it, it is. Um, I, I, and I don't think it's fair to call them disconnected. Right? There are chemical signals. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So there, 
these bees interact in a, in a coordinated fashion, right? Each bee doesn't really know what's going on necessarily, but like uh, the whole system does, it can react to threats. It can, it can actually do global optimizations, right? Our brain is not so dissimilar, right? Our, our, our neurons are kind of, you can call them dumb or whatever you want um, uh, individually. They're not going to know what the whole system's doing, but they interact in a way in a system that makes them w- adapt and actually give rise to this uh, emergent mind. So, so I do believe these, uh, there's, a, there's a whole theory by, by Christoph Koch. Of course, IIT. Yeah, exactly. And this is he what was on the about. show. He was on the show. And, okay, uh, very good. Yeah. Um, so would you say there's any linear association? We have 86 billion. There's 50,000 bees in a hive. N- not one bee equals one neuron. But is that any indicator to you? of the relative experience of those two systems? I, I think it's, it's difficult to, to, to compare those two because each individual element is so different. But I, I think there is some um, loose uh, linearity between them. And w- the way to really look at it is, I, I look at it as in, uh, informational capacity or um, representational capacity, right? Uh, each element can, can has so much noise associated with it and has... Uh, has has a distribution of how it can how it can behave, and that can represent something about the world. Uh, that's true with a neuron. It's true with a bee. And when you put you know so many of them together, and they have so much interaction bandwidth between them, they can represent so much information as a system. And this is actually how I look at at the brain or look at any of these complex systems: how much informational capacity does it have? And actually, the big breakthrough we're seeing today in deep neural networks is really about uh, the is really about the ability to represent information in this uh, stacked hierarchical sense, which is how the world is really built. And we can actually represent much more complicated uh, scenarios about the real world rather than trying to find everything flatly. I promise I'll get to AI in a minute, but it's so fascinating to just understand kind of how you're viewing the world. Because I'm going to say, so take all that together. How do we teach computers to to think so i'm almost there i have like just a couple more you know when christoph was on the show i said well well sperm whales have bigger brains than we do and he said yeah they may actually be smarter than us they might be but you know what's the difference Um, language language exactly the io between each one of these local systems that's it so let me give you three more then how about the gaia hypothesis how about all living things, all the trillions and trillions of living creatures on this planet together form a single consciousness that just like our neurons are unaware uh, of you, your yeah. neurons don't know you exist. We can't really perceive it, but we can posit that it's there and has a will and a, mm-hmm. and a direction and all of that of its own. Is that possible? Again, I, I don't think it's not. I think it's not only possible. I think it's true. Um, if you have any... A complex system where each individual element is not siloed, but actually does have some interactions with other elements, you have this property. And, you know, if you, if you kind of free your thinking, um, like, like talk about what a mind is in terms of experience on top of a, on top of a complex system, it actually makes it a little more obvious when we, the, the word mind has, you know, religious implication and all kinds of irrationality associated with it. And so that kind of makes people feel uneasy about these things. But if you kind of put that aside and say, you know what, it's just a, a complex system interacting with the world, interacting with the physical world, then it actually says, well, okay, the mind's not so complicated. And that's true for any complex system. So I absolutely believe in Right, but that doesn't actually get you to consciousness because we could imagine a complex system that interacts with the world that doesn't perceive and experience the world. I mean, the minute I think my car is conscious i can no longer like floor it when i'm you know i can't use it to pull an overweight load right i have to i have to empathize with it if it's experiencing the world when it runs out of gas like that's a tragedy i have to like oh i let it down and we're not right now we don't think that way about inanimate non-living non-living things sure uh but anything it's an adaptive system right Right. okay and cars are adaptive systems too, by the way. Right. <laughs> Who more? Do you think plants have minds? And, and by this definition, yes. Okay. Uh, again, they're... Is it, po- 
their experience of the world is much simpler because the, the, the levels of adaptation they have are just much, much lower than what a, uh, an animal brain can do. I'll give you last one. The sun. The sun? Uh-huh. Is it a living system? Could it be? Uh, I'm going to say no. Okay. Because Stephen Wolfram was on the show, and, and he said he thinks the weather does have a mind of its own, that a hurricane, in a sense, because computation is occurring. Yeah. It is. And I do think it's really, and I'm not saying I believe the sun has a mind. I do think it's interesting that culturally independent of each other, all children, when they draw pictures of the outdoors, what do they put on the sun? The, the beams, kind of? A smiling face. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, at some level, there's some deep, you know, association of it with a mind. So, all of that to say, <laughs> do you think about this kind of stuff on your day-to-day when you're trying to get computers to solve problems, like whatever problem you're trying to get to solved? Does all of this guide you, or or does your kind of constant... Uh, it's our brains are too complex. We can't do them. We got to think of intelligence a completely different way. Uh, well, I think not your guiding light. Uh, yeah, I think the it's a guiding light. I wouldn't say it's an everyday thing, right? There's a there's a lot of minutia that goes along <laughs> with actually trying to build something that uh, that becomes a product that can that can you can build these very complex systems out of. So, um, I think there is a guiding light of saying, well, how can we build a complex system that adapts to the world um, in a way that is similar or in, in, in your uh, verbiage, you would have an empathy for um, and uh, solves real problems today that we can that we can have economic value out of. So there, there's a lot of pieces to that, right? But I do think that is where we're, where we're trying to go. Um, you know, it's sort of the geek in me from uh, the science fiction lore that I read, you know, as a child over and over again. Uh, that's, that's what kind of guides me and motivates me can, to, to move forward here is that we can build a better world where we have not just biological intelligences, but also purpose-built intelligences that maybe we have some empathy for, but they, you know, they're, they have a lot in life, which they're happy to do, which maybe we don't want to do. And we can actually build a more complex, but a better system for ourselves. Is that itself though, morally problematic? You build a race of slave machines and program them to do your will and to whistle while they clean your toilet. (laughs) Uh, while they experienced the world. Well, so that, that whole, the way that was posited was very, uh, ethnocentric, right? It is slave machines because we don't want to do those, those things. Um, if you can, would you say that a bird is, um, uh, a slave because he's, he has to fly and go get food. I mean, maybe he wants to fly because that's what he can do. So I think, we sort of anthropomorphize these things to a degree where we, we then apply a moral framework that applies to other humans because of our shared wants and desires. I think, right. I guess, I guess, I mean, you're right, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you built a machine that did experience the world, that had a mind, mm-hmm. uh, that had wants and dreams and whatever percentage of a human, um, are there any moral obligations you have to that device? I think that's a very hard question. The answer is probably yes. Uh, I, I don't think it's as simple as, you know, what, what I can't reflect it on it just back on myself. I think that's the key is that we have to think about it like, well, what was the purpose of this? Uh, because I would argue that, you know, humans really only have a few purposes, right? We have the purpose of survival and the purpose of procreation, right? It's pretty much it. And we, we have imbued it into our laws that those two things are actually, um, we, we as a human, human race are free to pursue, right? We, we would never put rules around those things. There have been attempts in the past, of course, uh, to put things, but that, that we see as a, as a basic human right. And so we have to kind of come up with those different rights for these engineered systems, right? They're not necessarily going to be the same as ours. And, you know, if you operate them outside of that, maybe it does cause them distress. So it's a different kind of empathy. Uh, that we'll have to have for these other kind of uh, intelligences that we build. It's not so simple. Go ahead. No, it's not so simple, I was saying, as, as applying it back on our human empathy, right? But do you see a day where a machine, it sounded like as we were kind of building up from the nematode worm to human consciousness that, and every time I said, can a machine do that? You were like, sure. Like almost like it's not a question. And so not to put words in your mouth, but presumably a 
a machine can be conscious. Absolutely, yes. Do you believe that we're machines? Yes. So we're conscious machines. Yes. And because we're conscious and experience the world and all of that, we have these human rights. And we have things like you can't torture a person uh, because people feel, and you can't abuse animals that we believe can feel pain. Correct. So presumably those same principles would guide how we treated conscious machines as well. That's right. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, I think that it should even guide how we treat other animals. I have, uh, I have, you know, uh, human mammals at home and I have, I have, uh, feline mammals at home and felines are pretty, you know, in a lot of ways, similar to people, we, we can anthropomorphize and empathize with them and say like, you know, if you step on their tail, it probably hurts and you shouldn't do that. Um, but I also have a parrot and birds are actually quite different than mammals. Um, I think what we sort of associate as okay is not necessarily okay with them. And some things that we think aren't okay are probably okay with them. Um, the way they interact and the way they want to interact with other beings is actually very different than mammals. And so I think we even have examples of this on, on our planet today, uh, but we just really like to live in our own head and, 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 you know, empathize with what we feel is right from a human perspective. And that's not even true for other animals on the planet. Could we build, let's say we wanted to avoid having conscious machines because you don't want to have to worry about like, oh, is that SWAT team robot that's got to go in and, you know, dismantle that bomb. Yeah. Like, you know, the whole reason we built it is because, so would it be possible, would there in your mind be any limit to the complexity of a machine we could build and manage to keep it from being conscious? Well, okay, that's that's an interesting question. And actually, sci-fi has gone after this numerous times, right? Uh, uh, Blade Runner, they would retire them after a certain amount of time because they start to become conscious. Um, I think, uh, you know, the complexity and and consciousness aren't necessarily the two to go together. It's, it's complexity plus adaptability uh, will equal consciousness. So if you can build a machine that does a rote task, even a very complex rote task, um, and doesn't have a whole lot of... A, adaptability in it, I could argue that it's not very conscious. And that's kind of what we're building today, right? We sort of build inference machines that can pile through a bunch of data and, and run very complicated uh, perceptual models of computer vision. They're not really conscious because they're not adapting. They're not changing continuously with the environment that's presented to them. They're static. Um, when you build a very complex system that is adaptable to its world, I do believe it's unavoidable that it'll, it'll become uh, conscious. You've mentioned science fiction a number of times. What kind of inspired you? Yeah, you know, I just, um, I always, I loved, you know, of course, space was the big thing when I was a kid, right? I was born in 1975. So, you know, early 80s and all of that is when, uh, you know, talk, people were talking about space. But it, it was a very interesting that if you, if you look back at science fiction at the time, space and AI actually kind of went together. You know, you have like, um, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, the whole 2001 series, it was almost like, we had to have some kind of AI system to actually do these bigger things like go into space because it's so complicated. And uh, you see that very commonly throughout uh, many of these different um, sci-fi books. And so I, I, I don't know, I just really thought, found it extremely fascinating that we have the, this example of, of a machine that's an incredible computer, you know, our human brain or maybe a whale brain, depending on <laughs> which one's smarter. Uh, and we really don't understand it. We can't even, we can't even take concepts from it yet. Like we can, by watching a bird and building an airplane, we couldn't do that with a brain yet. Uh, we were getting there. And I think that pursuit is actually what has motivated me. And I, I've actually, that's what my career was about was even undergrad. Uh, I was EE and CS, but I, I did a lot of computational biology stuff, like looking at neuromorphic computing and things like that. Uh, really trying to find that inspiration. And it's really amazing to me to be alive at this time because those fields are actually coming together. And that's why I found it very fascinating that CS and, and AI actually kind of went together for a long time. We took our inspiration from what we understood about the phenomenology of, brain, of the brain and tried to build computers around it. And now we're get, we've gotten to a deeper depth of our understanding of the brain. And now we may have hit on some computational uh, building blocks that actually allow us to build these brains. Just like we figured out how to build a wing uh, that could actually have sustained flight like a bird. I think we've kind of hit upon those uh, those basic building blocks. Now. What do you think are so? We had this new trick in our AI um, quiver of of machine learning. Yep. Powered, uh, fueled by 
faster computers, better data collection, and and frankly, better toolkits. Yep. What are the limits? Do you think of that model? Like, I I I find it hard to believe that model is going to say uh, build something that can pass the Turing test. Um, what do you, but it's really good. You know, it's central assumption is the future is like the past, right? Because we're training it on, on data. And so sure. a cat tomorrow looks the same way as a cat today. Yeah. Um, what do you think the limits are to what we can do with machine learning? Could we build a general intelligence with machine learning? Or is it just kind of the next little trick? And we, there's a bunch more tricks we're going to need to discover along the way. Well, if in, if in machine learning, you're, you're um, including deep neural networks or neural networks in general, yes. I, I do think you can get there. Now, I think the fundamental limitation is actually not the, the posing of the problem as a neural network. It's actually the, arch, the physical architectures of the computing elements that were built. So uh, I do believe you could simulate a consciousness within uh, a standard Turing machine computer. However, it'll be so inefficient that you would need, you know, two suns to power it or something like that. So I think that's that's really where we're at right now. It's not about um, the capabilities and uh, lack of understanding. I do believe the path we're on will get us there. You know, there's going to be a lot of bumps along the way. It's not going to happen tomorrow. So, you know, it's a, at least a 50-year endeavor in my mind. Uh, but it's not, it's not about um, what we have today is fundamentally broken. It's that what we have today is fundamentally way too inefficient. So whenever I come across um, some chatbot that doesn't purport to pass the Turing test, but purports to be able to answer questions. I ask the same question. And so far, zero, I've ever gotten it. And the question is, what's bigger, a nickel or the sign? And you know instantly why that's a hard question for that chatbot. Yeah. What, why, what's our path out of that? Like, you just throw, what's our practical path out? Because I heard you just say, look, Give me two sons, and I'll uh, I'll I'll make you something that can answer that question. Yep. But what's it, our practical path out of that? It's so economic feasibility, right? This is what it comes down to, and this is true in nature too, right? You couldn't build, you can't build a system that's so inefficient that it would need to eat all the all the other animals on the planet to to work. It's not going to happen. So nature evolved a very efficient system, like our brain, to 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 underlie these computations. And I think we're getting there, right? We're, we're orders and or we're at least five orders of magnitude away in terms of the efficiency of a brain. So uh, I think the path to, to doing that, to getting that chatbot to be more efficient is to make something economically viable, um, you know, in a, in a stepwise fashion, right? We'll, we can go from today to tomorrow to the next day and actually build something that makes sense for a market that people will pay for and actually uh, doesn't, doesn't take two suns to power. We're never going to build something that takes two suns to power. That will never actually occur. So it has to be along this path of economic viability. And that's actually why I, I love what I do, because I get to be part of that. Right? We are building new architectures that are tremendously more efficient for these kind of computations. And uh, that's, that's, that's what keeps me uh, going uh, you know, uh, every day and w- waking up in the morning, is, is being on that path to building an intelligence that could actually be realized in the real world. So the brain uses 20 watts of power and your five orders of magnitude 10,000 times means I get to what is that 200,000 watts. But even with 200,000 watts, you couldn't, you couldn't do it, right? Yeah. No, it's actually, I said 100,000. I said five orders, right? So that'd be 100,000. So yeah, I mean, 2 million, million watts. watts. Uh, probably still, you're probably right. You probably can't. <laughs> So, so we're, we're, that's why I said at least five orders of magnitude. So it's, it's, it's probably more. So we're very far away still from being able to accomplish that in a, in a system that's viable. No one's going to build a single system. Well, I wouldn't say no one, no one, because we're potentially doing some of these things already, but uh, it's unlikely that people are going to build multiple systems out there that are, you know, megawatt order systems uh, to solve one task. So, we do transfer learning really well, right? Like, I could say to you, Naveen, I want you to imagine a trout swimming in a river, and I want you to imagine a trout in a laboratory. Mm. Uh, are they the same temperature? And you would probably say, well, probably not. Are they the same color? Eh, maybe. Do they smell the same? Oh, definitely not. And it's like, you don't have first-person experience with that situation. 
but you can instantly answer all those. Do they weigh the same? Of course. Um, what do you think we're doing there and how do we duplicate that in computers? Yeah, so I think this is actually the next generation of the path we're on is uh, building a simulation of the world that we that we build up from experience. And then we actually interact with a learning system to, to learn more about that system. So for instance, we actually build a physics model of the world. I was a motor control neuroscientist and we have very detailed models of our arm, our arms and limbs and everything in our brain. And this, this, this was built up over time. And so um, it's argued actually that when we sleep, we actually run through different scenarios against those, those simulations. And we have a reinforcement learning system that actually says, oh, this is a good outcome or that was a bad outcome. But I can run many, many more cycles in my brain than I could run in the real world because energetically it's cheaper. And I can actually learn against those things. And we're seeing that happen already today, right? Uh, OpenAI published a thing um, where they're learning the dynamics of Dota, right? Uh, uh, the, the deep brain, uh, deep mind guys uh, published a reinforcement learning system that learns from nothing, right? It's not told anything about a game and it can actually learn uh, uh, Go, it can learn chess, it can learn whatever and actually beat a human by just playing against itself in the simulated world. So it learns the dynamics of the world and it actually is able to simulate different scenarios and actually learn from those scenarios. And I think that's what our brain does very, very well and that's the next generation of it. That sounds like kind of the logical step from your earlier comment that you thought minds had to be embodied. Correct that to some degree we need to embody these things. So tell me about your day-to-day uh, at Intel. What do you, how many projects do you have going on? How do you decide what to work on? Do you do any pure science? Like what is it, what is it like there? Well, the line between pure science and applied is, is, is pretty thin these days, right? Uh, I think we're all sort of looking at that, that North Star of getting to an intelligent system and we're figuring out ways that we can chip away at the problem. So uh, my group does do research. We actually interact also with Intel Labs, which does more far, far-flung far research, so like five, 10-year-out kind of research. My, my group does you know, three to five-year-out research and also just straight development. Then we have to translate that into uh, what are emerging needs that we see within the next year or two, because we're gonna build products for the next year or two that we're planning today. Um, how, how we can, you know, help define the tools to make more people be able to use these things, right? Uh, today, data scientists and AI researchers are a few thousand people around the world. If we can enable tools that allow a few million people to use these things, we'll make even faster progress. So that's a big part of what we want to do is build the best tools to get more people working on these problems. Um, and then building the fundamental substrate uh, that accelerates all of this. So going and chipping away at this problem. So I'll give you an idea of how far we've come just in the last couple of years. When I uh, came into Intel two years ago, uh, we were running on NVIDIA GPUs, which were six teraflops uh, of computing power and about 250 watts. We're going to have a chip that is, uh, what, 50 or 60 times that in, two, in next year as a product in the same power envelope. So we took you know, an order and a half of magnitude out of it just in two years. So it's kind of crazy, right? If we're chipping away at that five or six orders of magnitude that we talked about earlier, we're getting there. We're take, if, we're, if we can take an order of magnitude every few years, we'll actually be able to get there in, you know, 30 to 50 years. And so that's kind of where, where my head really is. And we're looking at, you know, training is the big one because that's the adaptive system. And then inference is kind of the, uh, the front end of that where we see massive scale. And so I got to look at it from the perspective of markets and, and economic viability as well. So it sounds like uh, you've got like a left brain, right brain job going on. You've got to uh, get inspired in one half of your brain and then listen if the cash register rings in the other half. That, that's, that's a good way to describe it, really. I think, uh, you know, we're very motivated by this creativity aspect of it. It's I think great engineers and scientists are actually artists, right? I, the, the best breakthroughs I've ever come up with, I've, I've sort of thought about in the background of my mind and, and you sort of look at a problem in a new way. It's a very creative process and we have a lot of that going on right now. But then we also have the, uh, you know, go get shit done, like plan it out, project management, all of these things have to happen as well to get products out the door. So, uh, but they work together, right? If we get products out the door, that'll inform 
uh, how we build the next one, which we can apply that creative process to. So it's a continual loop of innovation. You know, there have been times in the past of great innovation and the people who were at the forefront of it had a keen sense of the moment. And I'm thinking specifically the Manhattan Project. Like mm-hmm. they wrote about it and talked about it and discussed. And you seem to have uh, that same sort of sense about yourself that you're cognizant of the place you're at at the time you're at and and all of that. Would you say that that's true of your whole team and all the people there? Is it like man, we're lucky to be alive. We're lucky to have been born the moment we were, to be right here at Intel, to be in the middle of this this great new revolution. Like, do people, or is it more like, hey, where are we going to get lunch today? <laughs> I think there's definitely, uh, you know, kind of a guiding, guiding light there uh, that people, that's why they do it. You know, a lot of people like me get up in the morning because of that bigger goal. It's not necessarily what you're worrying about every day, uh, but it is why you're doing it. Right. I think that's that that's that's actually the culture I wanted to instill in this group was, uh, you know, we're changing the world. We're at the precipice of a huge, like, massive change in humanity. Uh, and, you know, I tell the team this all the time. It's like you're part of it. You're building the next generation of what humanity will be. This is not a small thing. So I'm an optimist about the future. I grew up on science fiction as well. I believe the credo of Star Trek, you know, Gene Roddenberry said in the future, there'll be no hunger and there'll be no greed and all the children will know how to read. I believe all of that. I think that we use these technologies to multiply what people are able to do. We'll use them to solve historically intractable problems. You can probably sense the but coming up. But there are, I think, two areas that I worry about, and I wonder what your answer to these are. So the first is that the whole notion of privacy we've had in the past, uh, we've kind of had it because of just so many people. No government could follow everybody and listen to every conversation. But now, of course, you can do text-to-speech on every phone conversation. Uh, cameras can read lips now as well as, as well as a human. So every, every video camera is essentially a microphone. My devices track where I go. I mean... You can data model me and every word I say using the same tools that are created for very good purposes, like finding cures for diseases. So do you believe that the era of privacy is over, that it's just incompatible with the world where you put so much of yourself out there, either deliberately or not deliberately, in a form that can be collected, data mined, and, and studied? I, I don't think it's over. Uh, in fact, I, I'm a big proponent of people being able to control um, those things very accurately. I, I think we've actually overcorrected a little bit right now. I mean, uh, I'm not going to name, name company names, but you already know who they are. Um, I, I think it's taken a lot of liberties with people um, and, and, and preyed upon not, on them not really understanding the value and, and uh, uh, consequences of sharing their data. Um, I actually... I, I do not share that data unless I absolutely want to get a service for it. Uh, so I think um, we need to build better technology to actually deal with these kinds of things. I mean, things like homomorphic encryption and other, other technologies actually could get us to a point where uh, we have control over, over, that, over our data that we, we have generated. Um, in addition to that, we, all, we also should have some kind of um, trust in the provenance of data, that when I'm looking at something, it's really from... Uh, the source that I think it's from. Uh, we absolutely need to do this as a society uh, or, or we end up, we, we risk losing, I think, the very basic pieces of what uh, make us individuals, right? Uh, now, that again is a very uh, now concept. Maybe in 200 years, we'll feel differently after machines and, and us interact in a much more fluid way. But today, I think there's, there's distinct value in individuality uh, and credit for your work, uh, because that's how our system works. So we absolutely need to protect that. I'm a very, very big proponent of privacy, especially in AI systems. So on another topic, do, isn't it the case that the notion of explainability, that some, because you keep saying too complex, too complex, too complex, that, that some things, some conclusions AI comes to, we just won't understand. If I went to Google and said, you know, for pool repair or pool cleaning, 
why am I number four and my competitor is number three? They would rightly say, we have no idea. Like, how would we know that? 50 billion pages, why you're number four and they're number three. So if we insist on explainability, aren't we, isn't there an inherent trade-off in that? Yeah, I think this whole notion of explainability <laughs> will, will diminish with time. Uh, systems are getting just more and more complicated, right? It's, like you said, it's, it's almost impossible already. And, you know, we don't do this with a human, right? When I ask a, a neurosurgeon who's been doing it for 20 years, hey, why did you use that stitch there? Or why did you do this, make this decision in a split second? Do I really care that I can get into their head and, and pull out the weights of, you know, their visual system and this and that and the other thing? No, I, I don't, because I trust that that system, that human has been trained sufficiently to make the right decision. And I think that's where we need to get to is more like bounds around decisions. And does this system tend to make positive and good decisions versus not making good decisions? I think that's where we really need to get to. And we, we are getting there in, in certain areas. We're not, you know, like um, the, the, the visual um, tools they have in Google already where you can do a, a photo search and stuff like that. I mean, Yes, there are biases and things like that, which they try to fix uh, as quickly as they can. But we don't necessarily have to ask, why did you categorize this as, as this image? It, it's okay. It doesn't matter. It, just, it is what it is. And we'll say, hey, that's probably not right. Go back and fix it. But I don't need, I don't need a full level of explainability that I had with a, a regression-based system. So yeah, I, I, I actually uh, agree with you. Yeah. Do you know how your credit score is calculated? Yeah, no, exactly. And nobody does, right? <laughs> it's a completely... Care opaque number but it's somehow like reasonably accurate so exactly people um, will get used to it right well i feel like we're running out of time here it, what if i what if i not ask you about that that um you'd like to tell us about something you're working on something we should know about an issue i didn't raise just anything you want to close with well you know i think uh there's some interesting trends that we're seeing today in terms of distributed computing, right? Computing for the last 50 years has really been about making application work on a single chip. I think going forward, uh, the, the application is distributed. And it's a really exciting time because I don't think everybody knows that yet. A lot of people are thinking about a single chip. You see it today in AI, right? People are like, oh, an NVIDIA GPU does this. Do we really care what one GPU does? Not really. It's actually more about making a distributed application work and actually bringing the complexity of that system up uh, to a point where it can actually start doing interesting things. And so uh, I think that's really where we're looking uh, going forward. And you know, we're gonna see products coming out around that. And so I'm very excited to see those come out, go into the real world, be deployed, and you know, start changing uh, the face of what we actually call a, a computer right, in computing. It's going to be a really exciting time next five years. Well, Naveen, you're a fascinating guy. Uh, we could go on for another hour. Tell me, how do people follow you? How do keep people keep up with what you're thinking about what's going on in that brain of yours? Uh, you know, Twitter is a good place, um, at Naveen G. Rao. Uh, and also, we'll be publishing blogs. I'm going to be starting a blog series, actually, uh, that I'm personally writing. And so I'll be, I'll be promoting that on Twitter as well. All right. Well, we'll link to all of your stuff. And thank you for your time. Thank you. Wonderful conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel, using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.